Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. My friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. And I got my appointment for my vaccine, which is coming up in uh, about a week and a half. It's, uh, you know, a week from Sunday. I will get my first shot. Louise got her first shot two days ago. So uh, we are hopeful. Uh, you know, uh, Sean is in line to get a shot. We've got to figure out how to get Nate vaccinated. I'm so looking forward to the day that we can all get back in the studio. Joe Biden gave a speech. It was absolutely brilliant. I thought it was one of the, I thought it was up there with some of FDR's fireside chats in terms of his ability to connect with the American people. You know, Obama had soaring rhetoric. Bill Clinton did great wonky things, great wonky speeches. Jimmy Carter, there was substance to what he said. And no Republican president has ever kind of brought empathy, right? Brought heart to anything. So it was just extraordinary. And I think that we're at the end of an era. The piece that I published over at uh, HartmanReport.com, there are two Hartman Reports. There's the free podcast, which you can find, you know, wherever you find podcasts. And then there's my daily writing. I, you know, every morning I get up really early and, and sometimes I do a little bit of work on it, you know, the night before. And we bang out this, I, I, you know, I write up this piece that is typically the same thing as my opening rant. And we post it at HartmanReport.com. You can get that right in your mailbox for free. There will be eventually some other content that we'll add to it that there may be a charge for, but everything is free right now and will continue to be, most all of it will continue to be free forever. So uh, that's at HartmanReport.com. The piece that I published, you know, I think it really reflects the message that I've been inching towards in my conversations with you, which is that we, but, but I haven't just laid it out, and, I, and I'm going to do that right now, and then I'll pick up your phone calls for the rest of the hour. And that is that we are at the end of an era. Peter Turchin published a really provocative piece about a decade ago, 10 years ago, in Nature magazine. And in that piece, he pointed out that politics tends to go in roughly 50-year cycles. Sometimes they're as short as 40 years. Sometimes they go as long as 60 years. But typically, the sweet spot is 50 years. 
And he pointed out that 1971, well, he didn't, he didn't point it out. He just referenced that period of time. I pointed out in my piece over at HartmanReport.com that 1971 was when the Powell Memo was you know, written. It was when the entire right mobilized. Within four or five years of that, you had the Federalist Society created, the, the Heritage Foundation created, the Charles Koch Foundation became the Cato Institute. State policy networks started growing in every single state. We now have a billionaire owned and driven political infrastructure with all of these groups that is larger than the Republican Party itself. So I had a great conversation last night with Dino Badala on his show here on Sirius XM. And we were, you know, talking about this and just laying this out, you know, like why do Republicans, for example, the tax cut that Trump pushed through back in 2017 had 25% approval among the American public, 25% according to Quinnipiac. This and every Republican voted for it. This uh, American Relief Act, which is what uh, Biden is calling it now, has 65% approval, more or less, across the board. And even a majority of Republicans approve of it. It depends on which study you're looking at and when, when it was done, because Fox News has been pounded on it, how horrible it is for you know, a couple of weeks now. So you know, they are capable of shifting opinions. But the bottom line is it's very, very popular, and yet every Republican voted against it. And you ask why? Well, because it's not the Republicans who control the Republican Party. It's a handful of, 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 of right-wing, cranky right-wing billionaires who put their, you know, who use their money to basically buy politics. And, and I think their day has, has come to an end. I think this 50-year cycle, since 1971 to 2021, that's 50 years, or from Reagan to today, that's 40 years. Reagan became president in January of, uh, of 1981. And, and if you look at those cycles, I think that the, you know, I'm going out on a limb here, but I really believe that you and I will be having this conversation a year, two years, three years, certainly four or five years down the road, looking back and saying the American Recovery Act and Joe Biden's speech, and, and and I get it, Joe Biden is no Bernie Sanders, but nonetheless, we are going to be looking back at this moment and saying the American Recovery Act and Joe Biden's speech marked the beginning of the turn the beginning of the end of the era of Reaganomics. And I point out in, in, in my piece over at HarbinReport.com that the thing that really brought it to a head was the Trump presidency. He was so, you know, and, and the vaccine, for example, is emblematic of that. While the New York Times, as Eric Bullock points out, the New York Times is saying, you know, their, their headline, um, Biden got the vaccine rollout humming with Trump's help. Well, no, he got it running over Trump's objections, over Trump's obstruction. Uh, Trump gave uh, an absolute screaming disaster to Joe Biden. I mean, the Wall Street Journal, this is back in December. Pfizer had its 100 million dose goal in place until mid-November when it became clear the supply chain hurdles were too great for an end of the year timeline. Did Trump do anything? No, he went playing golf. What Biden has done is he's used the Defense Production Act to give to, to fill in that supply chain, to give these companies the, the raw materials that they need and, and, and you know, to help people who are administering shots with, with gloves and, and vials and, and, well, the vials are for the manufacturers, syringes, things like that. Trump did none of that. 
You know, instead he kept telling us how wonderful everything is and the vaccine is going to go away any minute. And you'll recall on January 15th, when Trump still had five days in office, and he and Jared Kushner had been saying that there was this huge national stockpile of vaccines. And our governor, Kate Brown, here in Oregon, tweeted on January 15th of this year, quote, Last night I received disturbing news confirmed to me directly by General Perna of Operation Warp Speed. States will not be receiving increased shipments of vaccines from the national stockpile next week because there is no Federal Reserve of doses. There wasn't even a real federal stockpile. Trump was grifting again. Uh, our governor, Kate Brown, she said, I'm demanding answers from the Trump administration. This was later that day. I am shocked and appalled that they would have set an expectation on which they could not deliver with such grave, grave consequences. This is a deception on a national scale. Oregon seniors, teachers, all of us were depending on the promise of Oregon's share. So, you know, the grift, I think, is what brought it to a head. But I really believe that this 40-year this era of Reaganomics has come to an end. There's still a lot of thrashing and, you know, dying going on. And there's a few hangers on like Joe Manchin on the on the Democratic side. But I think that even Manchin is starting to come around. So you think I'm crazy or you think I'm right? This is the Tom Hartman program. I go into a little more depth over, you know, the piece over at HartmanReport.com. Anyhow, we'll be picking up your calls right after this. Stick around. Rob in Spokane, Washington. Hey, Rob, what's on your mind today? Hey, sir, just wanted to call about the British Royal Circus. And uh, as is typical of these media circuses, I believe it is being used to conceal a crime. I mean, everything that happened is very interesting. But an innocent baby, okay, the grandson of the queen, has been denied his rightful title and place in the royal family. And the royal family well, hang on, hang on, hang on, Rob. that endangered the child's hey, so life. Rob, pause. I'm sorry, go ahead. Just, just, yeah. yeah. Sorry, that sorry. has not yet happened. He, that child is not eligible for a title until Charles becomes king. Because yes, the titles uh, only true, go two true. generations down. So uh, there was enough. a discussion it, about whether yes. he should be denied a title. We don't know. Well, but isn't it as it stands right now without a change uh, that he does not have a title, that they've already said that he's not going to get the title? I don't. I could be wrong. I I thought that it was not carved in stone, that it was just, you know, the assumption. The bottom line is, is that the child was endangered by the royal family cutting off Harry and Meghan. And uh, Tyler Perry had to offer them bodyguards, um, you know, and I believe that this is a situation that they don't have any excuse for. You know, I yeah. think it was an abominable act is the main thing, even if, you know, the technical. And that's the problem. We get tripped up on the technical details. But the fact is, is that the royal family has discriminated against them because he chose to marry someone that wasn't approved. And that in itself is wrong. Yeah. I agree, Rob. And I, and I think that what this shows is the uh, absolute corrupt nature of the whole idea of royalty, of a DNA lineage ruling a country. Today we're reading from Martha Nussbaum's new book, The Monarchy of Fear, A Philosopher Looks at Our Political Crisis. This is from the introduction. There's a lot of fear around in the U.S. today, and this fear is often mingled with anger, blame, and envy. 
Fear all too often blocks rational deliberation, poisons hope, and impedes constructive cooperation for a better future. What is today's fear about? Well, many Americans feel themselves powerless out of control of their own lives. They fear that the American dream, the hope that our children will flourish and do even better than you have done, has died and that everything has slipped away from them. These feelings have their basis in real problems. Among others, income stagnation in the lower middle class, alarming declines in the health and longevity of members of this group, especially men, and the escalating costs of higher education at the very time that a college degree is increasingly required for employment. But real problems are difficult to solve, and their solutions take long, hard study and cooperative work toward an uncertain future. It can consequently seem all too attractive to convert that sense of panic and impotence into blame and the othering of outsider groups such as immigrants, racial minorities, and women. They have taken our jobs, or wealthy elites have stolen our country. The problems that globalization and automation create for working class Americans are real, deep, and seemingly intractable. Rather than face those difficulties and uncertainties, people who sense their standard of living declining can instead grasp after villains, and a fantasy takes shape. If we can somehow keep them out, build a wall, or keep them in their place in subservient positions, we can regain our pride and, for men, their masculinity. Fear leads then to aggressive othering strategies rather than to useful analysis. At the same time, fear also runs rampant among people on the left who seek greater social and economic equality and the vigorous protection of hard-won rights for women and minorities. Many people who are dismayed by the election are reacting to it as if the end of the world is at hand. A majority of my students, many acquaintances, many colleagues feel and say often with anguish that our democracy is on the verge of collapse, that the new administration is unprecedented in its willingness to cater to racism, misogyny, and homophobia. They fear especially for the possible collapse of democratic freedoms, speech, travel, association, the press. My younger students especially think that the America they know and love is about to disappear. Rather than analyze matters soberly and listen to other people trying to sort things through, they often demonize an entire half of the American electorate, portraying them as monsters, enemies of everything good. As in the book of Revelation, these are the last days when a righteous remnant must contend against satanic forces. We all need first to take a deep breath and recall our history. When I was a little girl, African Americans were being lynched in the South. Communists were losing their jobs. Women were just barely beginning to enter prestigious universities in the workforce. When people are afraid of one another and of an unknown future, fear easily gives rise to scapegoating, to fantasies of payback, and to a poisonous envy of the fortunate, whether those victorious in the election or those dominant socially and economically. We all remember FDR's statement that we have nothing to fear but fear itself. We recently heard departing President Obama say, democracy can buggle when we give in to fear. Roosevelt was wrong if we take his words literally. Although we had reason to fear fear, we certainly had many other things to fear in his time, such as Nazism, hunger, and social conflict. Fear of those evils was rational, and to that extent we should not fear our fear, though we should always examine it. But Obama's more precise and modest statement is surely right. Giving way to fear, which means drifting with its currents, refusing skeptical examination, is surely dangerous. We need to think hard about fear and where fear is leading us. After taking a deep breath, we all need to understand ourselves as well as we can, using that moment of detachment to figure out where fear and related emotions come from and where they are leading us. The Monarchy of Fear by Martha Nussbaum. 
It seems like Americans kind of across the board. Now, there is one exception to that, and I'll get into that in just a minute. But um, every race, every class, every political persuasion generally are recoiling in disgust that the British royal family would even have a conversation with Prince Harry about how dark the skin of his son might be because he was married to Meghan Markle. I mean, this interview with Oprah Winfrey is just mind boggling. And I think that there are several actually larger issues here that are worthy of conversation. And so I just wanted to lay this out for you, my take and my thoughts on this and and get yours as well. And we can continue talking about, you know, is the relief bill too big or, you know, uh, but I think this thing with the British royal family has really awakened a lot of Americans. And I think that there's a reason why at this moment in time, and I'm not just talking about the growing awareness and awakeness of white Americans about the plight of black Americans, the contemporary plight, I mean, not as well as the historical plight of black Americans. And I think that that has to do with the Trumps. And I'll get to that in just a second. But, you know, basically we joined with, you know, we were kind of iffy about the United Kingdom from the Revolutionary War. Then we fought another war with them and the War of 1812. So throughout the 1800s, the 19th century, our relationship with Great Britain was pretty much limited to trade. But then in World War I, we became allies with Great Britain in a giant world war. We repeated that again a generation later with World War II. And ever since then, there's been this American fascination with things British and things royal. There are books, there are magazines about the royal family here in America. TV shows about the royal family are big hits. The the latest one is The Crown, I think it's called. And I suspect that one of the reasons why this is imploding has not just to do with Harry and Meghan, but has to do with our very recent four-year experience at an attempt at monarchy in the United States. Donald Trump was the patriarch of a would-be royal family. He not only bragged about his great genes, which was, you know, is the essential quality for a genetically-based royalty, he not only bragged about that, but he installed his utterly unqualified daughter and son-in-law in an actual government advisory position, put them in charge of peace in the Middle East and, and the COVID response, which was to- both of which were totally botched. And then he had his sons, uh, principally Don Jr., in a uh, sort of unofficial government advisory position and a very official campaign position as if it was Prince Don Jr. and Princess Ivanka. And here's Donald Trump literally running ads on Facebook saying that he was going to be president in 2020 and in 2024 and in 2028 and in 2032. Remember that ad? Remember him talking in front of his rally? Maybe maybe we'll just stop having elections. That's called royalty. And when he tried to overthrow our government on January 6th, Well, it's an ongoing process, actually. I mean, he's ever since he denied the outcome of the election, he's been trying to overthrow our government. But January 6th was a high point. A nation that was birthed in defiance of royalty 
so that Donald Trump could establish his very own line of royal secession. Remember, Don Jr. was talking about running for the Senate from North Carolina. Ivanka was planning on taking on Marco Rubio. Excuse me, Princess Ivanka, Prince Don Jr. And then there's the conservatives. You know, from the founding of our republic, conservatives have had this love affair with the idea of royalty. Before the revolution, uh, the people who loved royalty in America were called loyalists or Tories. Uh, They never quite trusted mob rule, which is what they referred to democracy as being. And now they're piling on Meghan Markle. And whether that's because she's black, on CNN, Don Lemon just deconstructed Fox News' coverage of Meghan Markle. And clearly, a lot of it is they're hating on her because she's black. How dare a black woman have the temerity to marry into the British royal family, which has this pure bloodline. Those weren't their words. That, that was the implication. But it also, I think, is a defense of British royalty. Here's the kind of stuff that we're seeing. The writing.com, R-I-G-H-T-I-N-G. You know, they, they publish this stuff. You know, we read the right-wing press so you don't have to. This is from uh, Town Hall, one of the websites. You know, when Google stopped spidering and giving you results from Alternate and Raw Story, the progressive websites, they continued doing it with Town Hall. So if you Google these things, you know, Town Hall pops right up all the time. Not so much the left-wing sites, but anyhow, this is what Town Hall said. Quote, like a good woke American, Ms. Merkel charged that the royal family was bothered by the skin color of her son. When you don't have a legitimate grievance, you always play the race card. For Harry to allow his wife to make such a scandalous charge without naming names is cowardly. Yes, he's a coward because he didn't clamp down on the little lady. But it's also very telling, they write over at the t- at town hall. I suspect the missus was spewing fake news. Over at the conservative National Pulse, the writing uh, reports that their headline is The Many Lies of Meghan and Harry. And the headline over at Newsbusters was Morning Network News Shows Spent 91 Minutes Fawning Over Harry and Meghan. You know, these conservative freakouts about the first black member of the British royal family, though, I think are generally outliers across American public opinion. And it it seems like Americans aren't the only ones who've lost patience with these these self-absorbed, narcissistic, absurdly wealthy billionaire royal families. I mean, British television fired Piers Morgan. He walked off the set, but they said, okay, that's it, because of his attacks on Meghan Markle. You know, it was back in 1651 when Thomas Hobbes, in his book Leviathan, arguably kicked off the Enlightenment by saying that people could choose their own leaders. This was like the shot heard around the world. And then, you know, uh, two, two, uh, two generations later, uh, John Locke, in two treatises on government, you know, talked about the rights, the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and property. Jefferson took that, word, you know, took that phrase and replaced property with uh, happiness. And while democracies across the world are under assault by international oligarchs and theocrats, I don't think anybody can argue anymore after 240 years that democracy is not a viable form of government, which is one of the reasons why when Donald Trump tried to overthrow our democracy, the rest of the world stood aghast. Oh, my God. And now, I mean, this is fascinating, this piece in, uh, now that's from the piece that I published over at HartmanReport.com, but there's a fascinating piece in the Washington Post by Antonio Farzan talking about how the Australian broadcasting company is saying, you know, enough. 
not as a corporation, but people on ABC are saying, enough, let's get rid of the British royal family as the Australian. And this is in the Caribbean. In former British colonies in the Caribbean, they're growing increasingly queasy about their lingering ties to a nation that built its wealth through the slave trade. And that would, by the way, be the royal family. In September, Barbados announced plans to remove Queen Elizabeth as their head of state. Jamaican leaders have expressed interest in following suit, as have St. Lucia, St. Vincent, and the Grenadines. Now, Meghan had pointed out that she would go to these former British colonies where there's a lot of black people, and they loved her, and she thought this would help the royal family. But apparently, they're not interested in that. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So I realize it's up to the Brits to decide if they want to continue their royal family as having an actual role in government or let them just be ornamental. But what do you think? Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Uli in Teaneck, New Jersey. Hey, Uli, what's on your mind today? Uh, moin Tom, wie geht's? <laughs> Mir geht es gut. Ah, that's like me. Well, you were talking about the uh, royal family. Well, there's not a whole lot I want to say about those parasites. But um, one thing, uh, as long as... The so you consider them parasites? Months, absolutely. Because they consider themselves um, the upholders of British tradition. <laughs> okay. And the British keep on singing, God save the Queen. I know. Uh, I know. Anyway, the reason I'm calling is I just wanted to give you an update on vaccinations here in Teaneck, New Jersey. Okay. I got vaccinated on Sunday morning, and mm. everything went smooth, very organized. I get a card 
that I got vaccinated with Pfizer. And the second shot is due on the 28th of March. So I'm now, very one of the things, One of the things, Uli, that Louise learned, again, this is something she heard from a nurse, and so I can't say that this is absolute verified scientific fact, but what the nurse told her was that the first shot is a lower dose of vaccine than the second shot, and apparently that is to reduce the number of side effects from the first shot. And so that when you get the second shot, you already have some immunity, so your body doesn't freak out to the much larger dose. And so the first shot is kind of primes you, and the second shot is the one that really makes you immune. And, and so please be sure to get both. Oh, yeah, I'm definitely going. But I, I've also heard from my dentist. She's in her 40s, and she said she was out for about two days with fever. She couldn't lift her arm. So I guess yeah. it affects everybody differently. Um, yeah, that happened to my brother-in-law. He got knocked down for two days. So, okay, we'll see what happens. It's better than dying. Any, yeah. Also, I have a little update about uh, Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've spoken to members of my family and also many friends, and they're saying that in Germany, they are tripping over their own bureaucracy, mm-hmm. getting this going because they're very careful with lawsuits and uh, you know, all sorts of complications. But anyway, he said, or some people said now, that apparently starting in the beginning of April or towards the middle of April, you will be able to get your vaccine from your general physician. So mm-hmm. that's like, uh, I think as soon as that gets going, they will move, move fast forward. So anyway that's yeah i i I think so and everybody in germany has a physician and so uh, by and large and so it'll be a lot a lot easier it's it's got to be well you would think it would be easier in a country with a national health care system although you know the biden administration when louise was down here then in portland at the convention center she said the army was there they were helping out i'm assuming that that's you know the national guard in army uniform the army national guard but Biden is helping. He's making it happen. Uli, great to hear from you. Absolutely. Okay. Vielen Dank. (laughs) Have a great (laughs) afternoon. Thank you. Tschüss. Back to the royal family. Canada. Canada is part of the British Commonwealth, I guess. And nearly half of Canadians, now this was back in February, before the Meghan... Uh, and Harry kerfuffle, but nearly half of Canadians said that uh, they should dump the Queen as the head of state. The challenge to that, it's sort of like amending the Constitution here, only it's even harder. We require all 10 provincial legislatures and the House of Commons and the Senate to sign off on it. New Zealand is getting skeptical. Now, uh, Jacinda Ahern, the Prime Minister, Ardhern, excuse me, told reporters, she said, uh, I've seen before that I've not, I've said before that I've not sensed an appetite from New Zealanders for significant change, and I don't expect that's likely to change quickly. But, you know, the press there is talking about it. I mentioned the Caribbean, and I thought it was absolutely fascinating. This is what Megan said about her travels to parts of the British Empire where the majority of the population is black. And these are like St. Lucia, St. Vincent, the Grenadines, countries like this. She said that she often met girls and women who were touched to, quote, see someone who looks like them in this position for the first time. She said, I never could understand how it wouldn't be seen as an added benefit, that's to the royal family, and a reflection of the world today. Yeah, 
you know, a black person in the British royal family, it's like, hey, we're entering the 21st century. But maybe not so much. And Meghan was careful to point out that it wasn't the Queen or, or her husband, Prince Philip, who's in the hospital right now, who were the ones questioning the color of the skin of her child. And so we're left with the implication that it was Prince Charles, Harry's father, but who knows? I mean, you know, it could have been somebody else. But the bottom line is, or the question, I suppose, is isn't this institution an anachronism? I mean, the, it seems to me like the British monarchy and the royal trumps remind us all that really this idea of we the people being in charge of our government, this radical, it was literally a radical idea in 1776. Never been tried in human memory. I mean, well, yeah, but the Greeks 3,000 years earlier. For, for, and that lasted, what, two, three hundred years? But I think that the world is getting tired of overdressed, cranky billionaire families. And most of the rest of Europe that has royal families have relegated their royal families to simply being decorative. Yes, you can come out, you can have a little pomp and ceremony, and they've turned it into tourism. But in England, I mean, the Queen actually has the power to dissolve Parliament. She has the power to, I believe she has the power to strike down laws. I'm not sure if she has the power to pardon. That's the old kingly pardon. But, I mean, you know, there, there are some substantial powers, real powers, real political powers, that go along with the Queen being the head of state in the United Kingdom. Now, the flip side of this is here in the United States, if you read the conservative media and you look at what's going on over on Fox News, it's almost like they're saying, well, we need a royal family here. And that's what I think they thought they had with Trump. Holly in Marshall, Missouri. Hey, Holly, what's on your mind today? Oh, the royal family. I have a friend who lives there, and I've uh, visited many times in England, and I rarely saw anybody mixing with people of color. But... Speaking about the family itself, the Queen is one of the richest women in the world, and she wouldn't even pay for the part of the palace that burned down. The British taxpayers had to pay for it. They also own most of the private property in England, and it makes me sick to think that people don't think they're racist. Anyone who has seen the movie Gandhi or uh, Lawrence of Arabia and seeing the way that the British treated the people of color, they just don't understand history. They're notoriously, yeah. the whole history is racist. So, Well, the, also, the history may be. I mean, the history of America is very racist. That doesn't mean that you and I are racists, it, although I'm sure that all of us have the germ of that in us. But my point is that I think what the Queen is trying to say right now is, yeah, that was part of our past. That's not part of our present. Thank you. Cassandra in White Plains, New York. Hey, Cassandra, what's up? Hi, Tom. How are you doing? I'm, I'm an well. African-American woman. And just in my take on the Meghan Markle thing, I have some questions as to whether or not this is really a racist question about the skin color of the baby. I think people are conflating three different things. One is the extreme racism of the British tabloid press, you know, with the uh, collusion of certain racist courtiers. But we don't know what the, the opinions of the British royal family are. I mean, they certainly welcomed her at the wedding. 
And then the second one is the question of the skin color of the baby. We don't know. I mean, we only know that Prince Harry said a family member asked that. We don't know the spirit in which it was asked. Was it snarky and nasty and racist? Or was it just a genuine question, as you would ask about, oh, what's the eye color going to look like? Does he have his uh, mother's nose or father's nose? Cassandra, Um, wasn't it in the context of whether he should have a title and a security detail? Well, that's the third part of this, is Archie is not going to be a prince. And that, you know, sort of, I'm wondering a little bit about conspiracy theory on that one, because there were rumors that Prince Harry's father is not Prince Charles and that he's not in the line of succession, that his father is James Uh, Hewitt, uh, Princess Diana's writing master. And so this might be a convenient way of not having to ever deal with that. I mean, the nuclear option would be genetic testing, because then the question is moot. You know, but as far as the question of skin color, I have a colleague who's of European descent who's married to an African-American guy, and she came to me very shyly and said, can I ask you a question? I don't know how to do black hair. You know, if I have a girl, how am I going to do the hair? You know, and I just told her, mm-hmm. don't worry, your hair is straight, your husband is curly, it'll probably be wavy, it won't be a problem. And even if right. it's kinky, These you know, things you work out. detangling shampoo, don't worry about it. But the, right. the question of skin color, I, I mean, I found it a little bit creepy, you know, as a richly pigmented African-American woman, that Meghan Markle would be offended. It was like, of course he'll be white. Look at me. You know, whereas, you know, maybe the kid will be the same as her. I don't know. But I don't know the spirit in which that question was asked. And I think that's the most important thing. If it was asked in a nasty, racist way, then it's a nasty, racist question. But if it was genuine curiosity, I'd like to know. I agree with you on all those points. I, you know, I, I can't dispute any of them. And we certainly do need to more, know more. But I think the larger question is, and this goes to your point about, you know, well, what if Harry's not actually Charles's son? That presupposes the legitimacy of a lineage that is purely based on DNA, which is based on the assumption, I mean, keep in mind, the, on, on British coins, there are four letters, not all their coins, but on some of their coins, there's four letters. Mm-hmm. One of them is R, which stands for Regina, which is Queen. There's another R in there, which is Rex. I forget what the letters are now, but they stand, what they stand for are Latin, four Latin words that mean she rules by the grace of God. That mm-hmm. the official story of the British royal family, and of pretty much all royal families, you know, that was developed back 500 years ago, is that God put them on the throne, not some warlord king who just, you know, was more bloodthirsty than anybody else and willing to kill enough people to end up the head guy. And because God put them on the throne, there's something special about their DNA. And this is, I think, you know, when people got offended when Donald Trump was talking about he's got great genes, you know, and all this kind mm-hmm. of stuff. And it calls into question this whole idea of the legitimacy of hereditary governance. And, and that's there the larger no issue that I'm trying to get a hold of. I mean, of it's just a story. My it's point. Just a, I'm reading Yuval Noah Harari's Sapiens. You know, this is a story mm-hmm. you tell people, and people believe it, and it's yes. nonsense. I would not bow down yes. to this other human being. I mean, it's just a human being as far as I'm concerned. I don't recognize the British royal family as anything other than fellow human beings. And so I think it's total nonsense. 
this whole cottage industry I, I am. of courtiers and you know hangers on and critics and all this yeah. and and people counting out the bloodlines and and stuff. It's it's nonsense. Well, but I think, the, I think there's a place said, for it, and the. Uh, if, if I could real quickly, I think there's a place sure. for it, and that place is sort of like the little colonies up near Salem, Massachusetts, where you can visit one of these, you know, re- replicas of, of late 1600s, you know, uh, late 17th century uh, Massachusetts, where everybody's dressed up like pilgrims, right? Um, right. It, 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 you know, let them be uh, a museum piece. Let them be a tourism right. trap. But having them run the government... Really? Yeah. Yeah. Back or, you, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, I agree that that, that monarchy needs to be modernized. Um, they need to turn over all their castles and their jewels as national treasures and open them up as museums. And they need to, if they really want to lead a life of service, do that as a life. They should get a modest income, you know, from the government, but not riches beyond belief. Well, they're and, billionaires. Yes, let them do like Bill Gates, you know, open a foundation and help people out. I mean, it's like they're billionaires for right. God's sake. So, yeah, all excellent points. Cassandra, thank you so much for the call. I've got to move along, but thank you. Roseanne in Oroville, California. Hey, Roseanne, what's on your mind? Well, I was watching a program just recently within the last month that was about the British royal family, and they said that somewhere way back when one of the British royal family married somebody out of Africa who is black, and there's actually a portrait somewhere, but they're not allowed to talk about it. I don't know if you can find this anywhere. Sean says it was Queen Charlotte. It was. You know about her. (laughs) Okay. Black Portuguese. I don't know anything about it. Listening to all this, that whole royal family sounds like a cult to me. They're not really running things. There's somebody else running things there. It's really weird. Yeah, I'm with you. Roseanne, thank you very much for the call. Brian in Anaheim, California. Hey, Brian, what's up? Greetings, my friend, patriot, and lover of democracy. I have a uh, a psychological theory regarding the royal family that I'd love to get your opinion on. I would argue that not only is it absolutely essential to keep royalty and political power separate, but that Britain has actually done a far better job of that than we have. I think it's because we in America don't have royalty per se, that we assign royal status to celebrities, which allows people with no political experience, like Arnold Schwarzenegger, to become governor of California and Donald Trump to become president of the United States. So I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on, as a psychotherapist, is there a fundamental need to acknowledge royalty in one's culture? And can having royalty that is actually actually royalty allow for you know, to avoid this extreme danger of electing these non-politician celebrities? I think it's cultural, not genetic. If you look at uh, Aboriginal and Indigenous people, by and large, royalty is the aberration, the exception. Royalty seems to have come along with, and Daniel Quinn writes about this brilliantly in his book, Ishmael. Royalty seems to have come along with the agricultural revolution. When people settled down and started growing crops that were seasonal, and after the harvest, somebody locked the food up and then said to everybody else, you want some food? You got to do what I say. And thus, kings and kingdoms were born, whether it was the Aztecs or whether it was the British royal family. And, you know, we're talking about 7,000 years ago, probably the Sumerians would be a better example, Gilgamesh. So I don't think that it's a, it's a human thing, but I do think it's very much a cultural thing and one that I think we're shedding, you know, in fairly short order. At least I hope we are. 
Yeah, I would also you know, argue you kind of touched on. Oh, the one other point that I want to make real quickly, Brian, is that many governments separate head of state, which is largely ceremonial, from head of government, which is functional. In the UK, the head of government is the prime minister. The head of state is the queen. In Israel, the head of government is the prime minister. The head of state is the president. The president does the ribbon cuttings. The prime minister presides over the Knesset, the parliament or, you know, whatever. Yeah, I'm not that conversant. And we don't have that separation here, which is really what I think gets to your original point, which is, you know, the structural weirdness of American democracy that we have essentially made our president kind of the head of state and the head of government. And those roles get confused a lot, and that causes us to think that somebody who would be a good head of state, you know, that good pompous person that you want to be the face of the country, Exactly. Not necessarily the best person to actually run the country. I think Donald Trump is a great case in point. Brian, You're thank listening you. listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Ernest in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, Ernest, what's on your mind? Uh, speaking about the monarchy, I think it's absurd that we're still talking about the monarchy when those people went around the world colonizing half of the world and setting their cultures back forever. And here we are, we're treating them with kid gloves. Mm-hmm. And I read a book about Australia and how Australia was formed. Mm-hmm. And... It was incredible what they did to those people. They start, it started out, it was, they had a famine, and they would put people in jail for stealing bread, and they kept people drunk. And when they put them in jail, the jails filled up so soon that they had to put them in boats and the harbors, uh, and those people died because of the disease that that created. And they put them in big corrals, and they kept them in, in open places where they had to fend for themselves. And here we are in present day United States talking about the monarchy. Give me a break. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, I'm with you. I, I, I consider me monarchy skeptical too. Ernest, thank you for the call. Elaine in Gilroy, California. Agent hey, Elaine, what's up? Oh, hi, Tom. My question is about some of the things you said about the monarchy. You know, the Queen really does not have any power. She's a constitutional monarch. Parliament runs the country. You said something about the Queen can dissolve Parliament. No, she doesn't. When there's an election upcoming, the Prime Minister goes to the Queen and says, will you dissolve Parliament? And she doesn't get a choice. She says, yeah, because he's the Prime Minister and he's elected. And so they have an election and a new government comes in, or the old one, and she opens it again. Right? So she doesn't, she can't. But why insert her in that process? They don't do that in Israel when they dissolve the parliament. She she has no choice. She doesn't even write her own speeches. It's a constitutional monarchy. Britain has, it's a modern democracy. We have an elected parliament and the Queen's the head of state. It works. It's not brilliant. Mm. It's not perfect. But it does work. And as far as racism's concerned, oh dear, what can I say? I was growing up in the in England in the fifties and the sixties, which gives you some idea how old I am. And I remember seeing and hearing Martin Luther King and the race riots for you know, when people were peacefully marching for equal rights for colored people. And I remember saying, My God, is that America? I always thought America was, you know, state-of-the-art, land of the free, all that kind of thing. Dial yourself forward to 2021. It's still happening. These people, these Black Lives Matter people that are going out peacefully demonstrating, they're met with people wielding weapons, shouting racial epithets at them, and even killing them. So I really kind of think that America might have to put its own house in order a little bit with racism. And as far as Meghan's concerned and Harry, um, I think there are a couple of holes in their story. Like they say, uh, oh, she said, well, I was suicidal and I wasn't um, helped. Well, neither was Diana. And she's as white as the driven snow, so that wasn't racist. And Diana eventually did get some help. I'm not sure where from. And so did Harry, when after his tragedy of his mother's death, he suffered from mental illness. He got help. Why did Meghan not get help? Were they waiting for the taxpayer check? I mean, they're both rich. They can afford to go out and get a psychiatrist themselves. You know, I, I, I just, I don't understand. I think there's holes in that somewhere. Okay, I get that. And, cons- and, you if your know, wife was considering suicide, and uh, what would you do? Would you go out and find a way of getting the help, or would you wait for Medicare to send you a check? No, I would. I, obviously, I would do the best I could. But yeah, and, and I'm, there, I'm assuming I that think, Harry, within the constraints of, I don't want to think it. But I think Megan is. Uh, I think she's milking the race card. And I think Oprah gave her. Well, that's that's what they're saying over on Fox News. You know, it's impossible to know what what is in someone else's heart and how somebody else's life is conducted. But the one thing I get about British royalty, and I 
I may be wrong on this, but my understanding was that the queen has some powers that by tradition she doesn't use. For example, dissolving Only parliament. Over the church. Um, and that that's actually designed to be kind of a flywheel in case the democracy goes a little too crazy. You know, as if like if Boris Johnson was more like Donald Trump, then you might actually want the queen to have the power to stop him. Maybe um, so. And, I don't, and know, I, I don't you know, know enough about that. You can make an argument for that. Yeah, I think, you know, it's possible to make an argument for that and that, you know, some a particular family that has had consistency for generations and views the country as their family business and has this kind of uh, altruistic notion of oh, what's the Latin phrase for obligation of service, noblesse oblige, noblesse you know, oblige. that, that yeah. I mean, that. Yeah, that literally came out of, you know, the idea of royalty, that as a member of royalty, you have an obligation to your country first. And, and I think that Queen Elizabeth has, in large part, held to that throughout much of her life. But that has not been true of every royal in the United Kingdom. It's probably not true no. of every royal now, but I'm talking about every person who has occupied the throne. Well, so also Prince Charles is, is said he's going to uh, slim it down, which it needs doing. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see well, how, well, that we'll works see how it all shakes out. Elaine, thank you. Thanks for the for the discussion. It's it's uh, fascinating to hear your perspective and you know somebody who has been there and cares about it clearly. I appreciate your call and thank you for watching the program. For our book club today, we're reading from Thomas Frank's book, Rendezvous with Oblivion, Reports from a Sinking Society. This is chapter one, titled Servile Disobedience. Social scientists have tried for more than a century to understand how class works. Psychological experiments on the subject, however, are a relatively novel thing. So I was surprised to discover a few years ago that psychologists had published a series of papers on the behavioral aspects of social status and that their findings were almost uniformly unflattering towards society's winners. In one 2009 study in psychological science found that in conversations with strangers, high-status people tend to do more doodling and fidgeting and also to use fewer engagement cues, looking at the other person, laughing, nodding their heads. A 2010 paper published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology found that lower-class individuals, in quote, uh, turned out to be better performers on measures of such pro-social virtues as generosity, charity, and helpfulness. A third study found that those of higher status were noticeably worse at assessing the emotions of others or figuring out what facial expressions mean. All of which is to say the rich are different from you and me. They are more rude and less generous. They don't understand, they don't get what others are thinking, and apparently they don't really care. Perhaps this is obvious to you. After all, people don't design toxic debt obligations by calling out what they learned in Sunday school. Still, the research aroused media interest. The Christian Science Monitor's 2010 account of one study ended with this question quotation from Michael Krauss, then the University of California, San Francisco, who was one of the researchers. Quote, being empathic is one of the first steps to helping other people. One of the first things we're really interested in is what can make wealthy people, affluent people, the people with the capacity to give, what can make them empathic? I think I see the urgency of Dr. Krauss's question. After all, we have spent the past several decades doing everything we could to transfer the wealth of the nation into the bank accounts of the affluent to send them victorious, happy, and glorious long to reign over us. Oh, we've cut their taxes, gladly transferring much of the cost of keeping their property safe onto our own shoulders. 
We furnished them with special megaphones so that their voices could be heard over the hubbub of the crowd. We've conferred upon them separate and better schools, their very own transportation system, and a full complement of private security guards. We've built an entire culture of courtiers and syncopants to make their every working hour an otherworldly delight. We let them construct a system of bonuses and executive compensation on the theory that it would be good for everyone if the people at the top got to take home much, much more than the rest of us. And when it turned out that the theory was wrong, that in the most famous cases, executives chased bonuses not to the shareholders' benefit, but at their expense, why, we promptly bailed them out. We allowed them to step into the Fed's discount window and fill their pockets. We generously transferred their reckless investments to our balance sheet, and we chastised them a little more than a polite, with little more than a polite request that they please not do it again. We've done everything we can to lift them up and exalt them as the new Leviathan. The least they can do in return, one feels, is to show a little empathy. Besides, look what we've done with the old Leviathan, the government. For decades, we've attacked it, redirected it, outsourced it, and filled it with incompetence and cronies. Yes, it still works well enough when we need to blow up some small country. But those branches of it designed to help our Americans of lower socioeconomic status, in quotes, as the scientists would put it, are now bare. We need the rich to be nice, stop doodling, and, and to pay attention and get generous. Now that the government has divested from the empathy business, we need the rich to discover brotherly love and fast. Come to think of it, wasn't that supposed to be the deal in the first place? The arrangement Andrew Carnegie brokered over a century ago when he made his big career move from Steel King to public library baron? The laissez-faire social contract would grant private business a free hand, but in exchange, those who piled up massive wealth were supposed to extend a magnanimous hand to the rest of us. As Carnegie wrote in his famous 1889 essay, The Gospel of Wealth, we don't need socialism to solve our problems. Philanthropy is the true antidote for the temporary inequality distribution of wealth and reconciliation of the rich and poor, quoting Carnegie. Going further, Carnegie argued that the duty of the man of wealth was, quote, to consider all surplus revenues which come to him simply as trust funds, which he's called upon to administer in the manner which, in his judgment, is best calculated to produce the most beneficial results for the community. The man of wealth thus becoming the mere trustee and agent for his poorer brethren, end quote. That same th- way of thinking led Carnegie to support the estate tax. Of all fa- forms of taxation, this, says the wi- this seems the wisest, he wrote. It, is, it was wise because it would, quote, induce the rich man to attend to the administration of wealth during his life. And if he didn't, then the tax would, re- would return most of his hoardings to the community from which it came, using Carnegie's words. Vestiges of the Carnegie attitude survived to this day. 2009 study of high net worth individuals by Barclays Wealth confirmed that American philanthropists tend to understand their giving in a context in which the state is either absent or irrelevant. And of course, there are plenty of nice plutocrats who don't fidget or doodle when talking to strangers and who have no problem endowing a ward or a wing in return for a commemorative plaque. The business headlines even occasionally tell of billionaires coming together under the leadership of Warren Buffett and Bill Gates to donate their fortunes to worthy causes. But the billionaires with the strongest sense of class solidarity have a very different plan for their disposable income. Activating their lobbyists in Washington, building grassroots movements to march on their behalf, and using their media properties to run experiments on human credulity. Rendezvous with Oblivion reports from a sinking society. Randy in Gardnerville, Nevada. Hey, Randy, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I believe that previous caller is a bit of an apologist, although I 
completely agree with most of what she said. Royalty is, in fact, an anachronism. The queen has extensive powers, like you say, some very critical. And there's too many, really, to enumerate. But, you know, it's rare that she ever exercises these powers. The last time I could see Tom was 1999, when Parliament wanted to have power to declare war on Iran without the Queen's permission. She refused. The issue was dropped. And if I could say so as an aside, speaking of anachronisms, that describes our system. We could be operating like the Europeans with a coalition and proportional representation and pluralism, but we don't. We have this archaic bicameral, meaning two houses, not two parties. I don't know, Tom, do you agree with me that we need to modify our system and go for a multi-party system? I would, I'm all in favor of that, Randy. The only way to do that would be to amend the Constitution or sure. to go to instant runoff voting. Australia and New Zealand have the same problem we have, which is first-past-the-post, winner-take-all elections. And as a consequence, mm-hmm. they used to have two-party systems. They fixed that by going to instant runoff voting. And we've got over 300 communities in the United States, the largest is uh, the city of San Francisco, who have done that now. And that has been one of the big things that the Green Party has, you know, one of their major contributions to American democracy. And I think, you know, and, and, and of course, the Democrats and Republicans hate it because it diminishes their power. Pat in uh, Washington, D.C. Hey, Pat, what's up? Hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. Right, we had great sure. conversations today. But listen, I just wanted to just piggyback on the lady that the the Brit that called in and uh, all haughty mm-hmm. about, about you know Americans expressing uh, calling out racism where they see it. Now, I, and I understand what you said in terms of you have made benign comments that you didn't think were were racist and people accepted them different way. You know that's all well and good, but it is for the person who the comment was made toward to tell us what that felt like and what that and how they interpreted Agreed. that com- that conversation. They were privy to it, not anybody else. And furthermore, Diane, um, um, the young lady also said that she stressed the point that. You know, not only was it the the family, but it was an institution. And so she was not allowed to seek help. So, you know, that point about getting Medicare and waiting for somebody to to get me help. I know. I know. I'm with you, Pat. Pat, I got to run. I'm sorry, but thank you. Your eloquence shines through. I appreciate it. It's, uh, well, it's the end of the hour. It's the end of the day. Thanks so much for being with us. We will be back same time, same place. In the meantime, get out there, get active, tag your it. Democracy doesn't exist without you. So be a part of it, huh? Have a great day. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.